Before we get started today, I wanted to ask if you could help me out by telling me a little bit more about the people who listen to this podcast. I've got a survey now live for podcast listeners and donors to the Tally Room. Tell me what you find interesting, what you want more of, and what motivates you to tune in. You can find the survey link in the podcast description. Thanks. Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be diving into the history of electoral system experimentation in the United States in the early 20th century and the implications that it has for electoral reform debates today. My guest today is Jack Santucci. Jack is Assistant Teaching Professor of Politics at Drexel University and the author of the book, More Parties or No Parties. Hello, Jack. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thanks for coming on. So the early 20th century was a time of electoral experimentation across the Western world. In Australia, preferential voting was catching on. Numerous European countries adopted proportional representation. And in the US, there were also efforts to adopt new voting systems at a local level. Quite a few American cities adopted the single transferable vote in the 1920s, 1930s, most prominently New York City, which used the system to elect the city council from 1936 until 1947. The single transferable vote is roughly the same counting system we use in proportional representation systems here in Australia, including for the Senate, mainland upper houses and assemblies in Tasmania and the ACT, but the details vary quite significantly. In your book, Jack, you explore the shift to STV in these cities and the eventual repeal of STV in nearly every American city that used it. Perhaps the most interesting part of your book is where you try to theorize the different scenarios in which electoral reforms can take place or won't take place and how they are influenced by the different coalitions in a city. But let's start at the beginning. When did the campaign for STV in American cities start? Uh, the very earliest traces of it are in 1893. That's when people start talking about single transferable vote. Catherine Spence comes over to the United States, and she is the person who makes the pitch at the uh, Chicago World's Fair of 1893. But the first adoption isn't until 1915. That is in Ashtabula, Ohio. There's a fight in the early 19-teens about whether we're going to go the STV route or we're going to go the list PR route. That's quite an interesting um, part of, of the conversation because list PR, a bit more of a party-centered system, uh, you know, it's a bit easier for someone to vote, but they have a lot less control over where their vote goes, which candidates they go to. What were the sides in that argument? So the, the pro-STV side, I think, is really reformers who want some form of proportional representation and they are looking for a system that can, quote unquote, work with nonpartisan ballots. Uh, the, and then the other side of the, the debate is the Socialist Party. And they're saying, look, you know, this is a fiction that you can have no parties in politics. If you do this, uh, voters are going to rely on all sorts of heuristics is the word we would use now to decide how to vote. Uh, They're going to fall back on cues from, quote unquote, the banks, railroads and great daily newspapers. So this is a bad idea. There's an effort in early 1913 to pass List PR in Los Angeles, and it fails narrowly. But the lesson that comes out of that is, look, there's a segment of uh, the population that just wants nonpartisan elections, doesn't like political parties, doesn't like party grouping. Is the, is the phrase they're using, and the movement says, let's let's do single transferable vote. Because uh, STV was what we really saw here in Australia as well, 
Um, but we've evolved STV into a form where most of the time, at least where there are parties, uh, parties are grouped on the ballot. You can sometimes vote for the whole party and where you can't, they, at least they're a group together, you know where to find them. But it sounds like it was very much an effort to, even if parties do exist, sort of de-emphasize them and try to uh, give people kind of maximum flexibility over, over how they vote. I think de-emphasize is a good way to put it. And there's this, um, the the guy who's in charge of, of all this movement decision-making writes about these decisions in 1913 when this debate is going on. And that's how he's talking about parties. It's this sort of ambiguous way to talk about them. You know, we know they're not going to go away, but we kind of have to do it this way anyway, because that's what it takes to win these reforms. Uh, so you were saying that the Australian STV system is very party-wrapped, to borrow a term from a book that came out a few years ago. Yeah, well, it doesn't have to be. And we also use it a lot for local council, and that often isn't party-wrapped in that way. I mean, I live in Sydney, and most of the councils in Sydney are quite partisan, but we have this interesting system in New South Wales where you can run as a group, maybe with a party name, maybe without a party name, or you can run as an individual. And what tends to happen is in smaller rural councils, everyone runs as an individual. Most people run as an independent, but even if you run as a party member with an official party label, you're still just on the list with everyone else. But if enough groups run as groups, then the ballot form kind of transforms. But outside New South Wales, I mean, we don't have STV in Queensland and we're, we're about to get it back in WA. But states like Victoria, South Australia, Tasmania, even where there are parties, they don't get party labels on the ballot. I mean, one of the things that is great about STV is it can be both. But we have found that we have accommodated parties in that way, certainly at the higher levels. And I mean, I haven't gone a lot in depth to New South Wales had STV for state elections in the lower house in the 1920s, but they didn't have any of the stuff that we have now around above the line voting. I don't even know if they had candidates grouped on the ballot. And I think that wasn't the primary reason why it was eventually repealed. But I think a little bit of it was around, and this will get to your book again, that it was found to be kind of hard to manage. The parties felt like they'd lost a lot of control. And that's something that I feel came through as well in your book about the experience for parties in kind of trying to run under this sort of new system. By the time it's up and running um, in the late 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, it's party wrapped in the sense that you've got two sides in politics in most of these places. One side is the reform element, which is actually often a party that had lost power or hadn't had power in a really long time in a city. That was often the core of the reform coalition. And then the sort of defecting chunk of whatever incumbent party the reform had tossed out. Uh, so another way to say that is the reformers versus the machine. But the party is still lurking there in this thing that might be called the Citizens Nonpartisan Committee or the Charter Committee. Uh, that is a quasi-party that forms in order to engage in vote management. I'm sure your listeners are familiar with vote management. But all of that is, an, is evolutionary, and the very early adoptions are chaotic. They're, you don't have that structure, and they're repealed pretty quickly. So vote management would involve running a sort of number of candidates that can win, spreading out the first choice vote among them so that you avoid early el elimination. And I think 
and all of that is hard to do in the United States for various reasons. But the key thing is communicating to voters who is on your slate and getting those voters to rank the candidates on that slate. Yeah, it's funny. We we don't really do a lot of that here in Australia. Um, I'm aware of it from Ireland, where, again, even if there's party labels on the ballot, uh, they're not grouped by party, and uh, then there's no kind of party ticket vote. Um, I'm aware of it happening for, like, the Australian Capital Territory, for Canberra, where there's no above-the-line vote, so you're just voting for individuals. And there is a tendency, I've, I've certainly blogged about this, finding that, an individual candidate does, you know, in, in a district, it might contain 10 suburbs and one of the Labor candidates does really well in three or four of the suburbs. And and it turns out that they are actually organising their campaign in terms of vote management. Um, but it, it doesn't get talked a lot about and it's mostly just used in a few of these systems that aren't party dominated. We've kind of built the party system to be so dominant that they don't really need to. I think it happens a lot in Ireland. Um to take an example of what you're talking about, you might find there's a city where the Democrats are in the majority and under the pre-existing kind of plurality majoritarian system, that Democratic Party is dominated by a particular machine. There's a minority of the Democratic Party that's not really happy with that arrangement. They ally with the Republicans in the city to push a referendum or to try and achieve some change and they're the pro-reform group. I mean, in other cities, it might be in the reverse, but that would be some of the examples, right? That would be a good way to put proper names on it, yeah. (laughs) And why do you think it is that it doesn't sound like there was much of creation of new parties in these? Maybe there was a few places where kind of local quasi-parties emerged, but it sounded like most of the time it still remained Republicans and Democrats, even with PR. I think there are probably two big reasons for it. One is that it's possible that the single transferable vote in and of itself in its pure form just tends to produce two-party or two-block politics uh, because in a pure form of STV, vote management becomes so important. So if there's some group of people that want to have control of government, they have to pay a lot of attention to their coalition and do everything they can to make sure that that's a majority coalition. Before the book came out, I did a paper in electoral studies on strategic nomination under these things. The mental image you want to have is there's some person or some movement or a civil rights movement, for example, or a labor movement uh, that kind of crops up in a city and the major parties look at that or the major blocks look at that and they say, oh, what are we going to do about this? And they bid to co-opt it. And I think in a pure STV system without the ticket voting and all of that stuff, that may be the kind of party system you get if the system is allowed to chug along without being repealed. That's a sort of technical reason for why you don't get a bunch of minor party politics. I think the other reason you don't get minor party politics out of it is because that's just not how the connection between PR and minor party politics has played out historically. Typically, you see a PR system introduced where there already is multi-party politics. Um, So there's a very common belief in the reform world that if we can just get rid of the spoiler effect or, 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 you know, repeal Duverger's law, if you will, all these parties are going to blossom. I don't think that's how it works. I also wonder whether the fact that it's part of a broader political system, right, like we're not talking about a national party system that's used to decide government at a federal national level. We're talking about local councils where the same people then have to deal with 
who do we support for state government, for federal government, right? Was there any real effort to introduce systems like this for even state governments? Yeah, there was an effort in Oregon in 1908 to switch to, I think, an open list PR system. I think that's basically an advisory referendum and it wins. And then there's a protracted fight in the state legislature over what that PR system is going to look like. Uh, I think there's another referendum in 1912 and it doesn't pass. The point is the Oregon effort doesn't pan out. I didn't study the Oregon effort that closely. I came to it pretty late. So that's the only statewide effort I'm aware of. But there is an effort to write a model state constitution uh, in the mid-1920s. And PR is included in the model state constitution. But that doesn't gain traction in the way that the local level reform template gained traction. So you got these systems, where do they come unstuck? What's the process that undermined them? Because my understanding is there's only really like one or two cities that ended up keeping these systems like past the kind of middle of the 20th century. Yeah, Cambridge, Massachusetts is the only large city that retains STV past 1961. Why do they come undone? Let's go back to your toy example in which the Democratic machine is in charge of a city And the Republicans are unhappy with that, and the Republicans are able to peel off uh, some disgruntled portion of the Democratic Party. Okay, now we've got a local party system that is orthogonal to the national one, right? National politics is Democrats versus Republicans. Local politics is reformers versus the old machine. Eventually, that local party system changes, or if you will, catches up with change at the national level. So those disgruntled Democrats who are in coalition with Republicans start to think about going back home to the Democratic Party. And another way to think about this is you get a realignment in local politics. And STV, I think, is bad at processing those realignments. If we push a realignment through an STV system... Uh, all sorts of people get angry at the system and it gets repealed. But this is where the vote leakage issue comes up, right? Yeah. So let's talk about vote leakage because that is a thing that, you know, I I think Australians, like people all around the world, we're very used to the voting system we have. And I think particularly people who are like political geeks, really interested in this stuff, we understand it really well. And the particular peculiarities of it we're kind of used to it and i think particularly we're really used to the fact that we actually have a system that's quite complicated and there's the potential there for things like vote exhaustion can happen in this inconsistent manner and then we get into all these dramas about how much do you try and reduce exhaustion by threatening people with their votes becoming informal and then you worry about that and then you also have these issues around votes leaking between groups when it comes to preferences flowing, how much the preferences flow. And we've kind of dealt with that a little bit by having these tickets where you can just vote for a ticket. But when you don't have the ticket, which we certainly see in Tasmania and the ACT where they don't have above line voting, you know, a Labor candidate is knocked out or is elected and not all of those Labor votes end up going to the next Labor candidate. So how did that play into people's experience of using STV for like local American councils? The key question to ask about leakage generally is, has it changed control of government? You could sort of think about come from behind wins in the same way. 
so a come from behind win is under the alternative vote. Uh, somebody who was not the leader in first preferences ends up winning. These things can happen and nobody sort of has the ability to get rid of the electoral system or maybe even has the incentive to get rid of the electoral system. But when the vote leakage is consequential for control of government and policymaking is when you get widespread dissatisfactions. You asked me how it plays out. A very specific case, Cincinnati was sort of my theory building city, and I would learn things there and then go see if they held up for other cases. One really prominent example is the final STV election of 1955, where the Republican Party has about 72,000 first choice votes and the Charter Committee has about 60,000 first choice votes. But due to leakage, the Charter Committee gets a majority of seats. So it reverses majority control of the city council. That was one example of leakage. And all of this is tied up with the civil rights politics of the era and also the labor politics of the era. Obviously, the voters who have marked those preferences in that way might be happy with the result. But the political elites, the people who are organizing in those coalitions feel like well, we've lost power now because parts of our base have ended up going over and voting for someone else. The Democrats are unhappy because the Democrats are, are subsumed in the Charter Committee. And the reason that they've gotten a seat majority is because the sole independent Republican left in the Charter Committee has won on transfers from Republicans. And the Republicans are unhappy because there's this quasi-Republican who's caucusing with the Democrats effectively, right? So there's this non-committal middle there that both sides can agree to do something about. And her name is Dorothy Dolby. Dot Dolby is the name to remember when we think about the Cincinnati case. And this is this sort of non-committal centrist who's winning on transfers. It's interesting, I think, that people expect a PR system will lead to a much more fluid situation where there are lots of groups that are kind of acting independently. And my experience is that that does sometimes happen, but there's also plenty of countries where it means more parties can flourish, but they all end up picking a side and you end up, you know, within a situation like you get in like Norwegian elections or something where, you know, if you vote for a party, what other parties leader would end up becoming the prime minister or something and so it is interesting you end up with that kind of thing as well where it's like everyone's on a side there's not really a middle group that's sort of acting as a balance of power everyone's kind of falling into one of two camps well let's get to your theory that you kind of used the research that you did on stv to develop because your shifting coalitions theory doesn't just apply to early 20th century cities in America adopting STV, right? Like it more generally applies to changing the voting system um, in order to change or maybe maintain power within a polity. So you've got kind of three different types of electoral reforms that can happen under this theory. Yeah, I think that's really what's novel or new about it. Others have said, look, you're going to get electoral system change when self-interested coalitions see instability in the party system. But there are three modes of electoral reform. One I said was insulating, and that's incumbent coalition doing something to hang on to power. Uh, another was realigning, and uh, others have termed this electoral reform from below. And that is that is when out-of-power groups kind of gang up on the incumbent coalition. 
And then the third type was polarizing. And that was an effort to say, hey, look, the repeal of STV is also a reform, right? And why is that happening? It's happening because both sides of politics want to do something about that middle. How do you think these theories apply now to, let's say in the US, there's been a lot more energy probably picking up pace around voting reform in the US. There's uh, a lot of efforts around single member preferential voting systems being introduced for various jurisdictions, but there is also people pushing for proportional representation. And I mean, STV is, is a pretty popular choice for those who are campaigning for PR in the US. Do you feel like there's lessons to take away from your research for what's going on now? Yeah, I mean, the the key selling point for this stuff, which is that it gives you independent politics, is ultimately, I think, why it got repealed all over the place. We know we don't like the system we have now. We don't like the electoral system. We don't like the party system. We're not sure what party system we want to have next. So let's just loosen things up and free things up and go with the single transferable vote because we're not ready to pick sides, apropos of the comments you just made. One way to look at, I guess, basically a 40-year history with single transferable vote in American local elections is that it's just a long, drawn-out realignment process. The progressive era hits American politics, splits both parties in different ways, in different places at different times, and that gives you all sorts of weird coalitions, but eventually people find their way home. So that by 1960, we're electing John F. Kennedy And you're starting to see very clear differences between the national Democratic and Republican brands. The point is maybe that there's a very high probability that you pass all these reforms now because you want that middle, but eventually that is what gets this stuff repealed. And it's a different middle, right? Dorothy Dolby is not an early 20th century progressive, but you can't have a middle. It's hard to have a middle in politics. Stop trying to have a middle. You can have a pivotal party. But that's different from having someone who sort of votes with one side in the legislature on issues X, Y, and Z, and then the other side in the legislature on issues A, B, and C. Preferential voting is very popular in Australia, and it's kind of the standard thing we do to the point where if you ever suggest using proportional systems that don't involve preferential voting, it's quite a controversial thing because people like the idea of having complete control over their vote. And so it is a little bit hard to understand the difficulties with it, but I think you raise a couple of points. There's other places I've also read about practical issues with the practical implementation of it, that it is a big job and it's quite difficult to do. And we talk about how great our electoral administration systems are, but I think we kind of sometimes can underestimate like how crucial they are to just making the system work at all, just counting the votes, you know, having the actual voting system implemented. But it also creates this tension around what is the party system that would maintain a system of reform, of PR? Do you think it is possible to have a voting system change that produces a changed party system that is sustainable? Because some countries around the world have these kinds of systems, but it sounds like you're quite sceptical about being able to make a change that would actually change the underlying party system that exists in the US. Why is that so difficult to change? So election administration is a, the kind of AEC that you have is a product of the political will to have such an AEC. 
reforming the electoral system, again, is a product of political will to reform the electoral system. And then ultimately, keeping said electoral system in place is, again, a product of political will. And what we're not seeing here in the United States is political will to reshape the party system. And that gets into a bigger conversation about the dynamics of modern day American politics. So if we agree that there's a crisis of American democracy and and that Trumpism or whatever is problem number one to be solved, like the single most important thing that would happen to reshape the electoral system and then reshape the party system probably is the Republican Party splitting. And let's say there's a pro-democracy faction of the Republican Party. It splits off from the rest of the Republican Party and goes into coalition with Democrats for a while, both to pass electoral reforms or not, and just to be in coalition with Democrats, right? And there are policy compromises that have to happen on both sides, with, and that's just not happening in the United States. You know, and I think of voting equals ranking in Australia, and you said, well, it's sort of unthinkable for anybody to propose a one-vote system in Australia. That, I mean, that's that that, that to me is an indicator of how much political will there was and still is in Australia to shape the way that everyday people think about voting. I don't know how much the ordinary person cares about it, but they're used to doing it that way. And I think that they, certainly the political class values being able to, you know, people will brag about numbering to 120 boxes on a Senate ballot paper or something, you know, some absurd number, even though a lot of those numbers don't matter. You know, people like the the kind of the flex of doing it. And I'm sure lots of our listeners are that kind of person. And, you know, uh, I'll try not to say too many mean things about that particular act because, frankly, most of my friends are that kind of person. But um, it's a bit of a thing about, being able to maximize it. I look at that and I'm like, well, that feels like a feature of our system that gives an advantage, however small an advantage to the kind of person who is well-informed enough to make sure their vote counts at its full value. And maybe that is a problem with political equality. And we should have a simpler system where you don't get a benefit from being able to stand there and number, you know, a bunch of boxes as opposed to someone else who is busy and hasn't thought about this issue very much and wants to go in and vote and get out. Um, and we're talking pretty small things, you know, like how much it actually matters is pretty minor, but it can matter a little bit from time to time. But we do have some voting systems where I think a one-vote system would work. But what's your proposal? Because you, I know you have a different proposal about if you were to introduce proportional representation in the US going a different way and not using STV. A single vote open list system. It's not an entirely new idea. The very early STV adoptions in the United States uh, had problems. Uh, the problems that were most obvious at the time were the ones you're talking about, where certain kinds of people just just can't get it. They don't know how to use this ballot, or they're not using enough preferences to get party proportional outcomes or whatever. And political scientists who are studying these early data say, geez, they should just go with the Swiss free list system. So that was the competing model. What what they're doing over there in Switzerland, and eventually it's what they're doing over there in Belgium. Uh, And I think that's kind of a smart way to go because we don't have the election administration architecture that, that Australia has. Everyday people aren't habituated to voting as ranking. Then the le- I think it obviates 
the entire leakage issue that you get in an undisciplined two-party system. So let's say we started adopting PR in cities or in states or whatever. Again, you could do that without sort of changing the fundamental number of parties, which is what happened last time. And then you're back in that zone of, well, you know, we don't have multi-party coalitions here to manage the preferences. So we might end up with these leakage problems again. Uh, open list would be the way to go. But again, that's a, it's a political will. <laughs> it's a political will to pass open list problem. So open list, the way it would work is you have maybe a column of candidates who are the Democrat candidates, the Republicans, some Greens, Libertarians, whatever other parties might exist, and voters still just vote for one candidate, but those votes are all pooled to make a total vote for that party, and that is used to determine how many seats that party gets in that district, and then it's basically just a ranking of the candidates within that party, if they get two seats, who are the two candidates who got the most individual votes, they win the seats. It's proportional between the parties. It can be sort of proportional within the parties, but it certainly means within the parties, there is still the ability to have competition within a party. You know, you could have a more progressive and a more conservative Democrat competing, you know, in the way that we do sometimes with Tasmanian STV elections, where sometimes a Labor will maintain the same number of seats, but one Labor MP will lose their seat to another. That does happen. Part of what's really valuable about this, right, is you're just adding up the totals. There's no having to tabulate how many preferences flowed this way. You're not having to data enter every ballot. You're just like, this guy got 1,700 votes and this other guy got 1,300 votes and that's it. Yeah, that's one of the benefits. I think from the perspective of an incumbent government looking at this option, it's hard on sort of independence, disorganized factions that, that might call themselves minor parties because it sort of takes away their ability to finagle with those second choice votes. And, you know, here in the United States, one of the big arguments for any ranked ballot system is that you get your backup choice, uh, right? And that's great for a voter who wants to vote for something that's not the establishment. But from the perspective of an established party, you know, maybe you don't want the forward party are, are your readers are your listeners familiar with the forward party i'm sure some of them are yeah and so the forward party is associated with andrew yang and and i think it's be probably better described as an anti-party social movement uh and it's said not left not right but forward we want to sort of quote unquote run down the middle so great all of these forward party voters are going to use their first choice for a forward party candidate what are they going to do with their second choices you know, if the nature of this movement is to draw disaffected people from both major parties, presumably those people are going to use their second and lower preferences for those old major parties. So you end up with a pretty unpredictable system there, unless there's some way to bring forward into coalition with either of the major parties, maybe with the sort of ticket voting type innovations you have in Australia. I think there are a lot of pros for the open list option. People look at it and say, well, what about independence? It's hard on independence. Well, not really. I mean, if it, what it does to you is it makes you pick a side if you want to get elected, which is what politics is about, is sort of picking sides. So you might know better than I do on this because you have access to all the data on Australian local elections. But how many people use, let's say we have a five seat council. How many people use more than one or two rankings? Do you have a, a sense of that? 
Oh, it depends on the model because in like urban New South Wales councils, you can vote for a ticket above the line. I think probably most people just vote one. Uh, high rates of people just vote one. I think probably if you vote below the line or if you're voting on a ballot that doesn't have a line, you are actually required to number a number of boxes. It's either the number of vacancies if it's a divided council, like if it's a ward, and if it's an undivided council, you've got to number half. The council I grew up in had 15 seats, no wards, and so you needed to number eight boxes for your vote to be formal below the line. Mm. But you had an above the line option to just vote one. And so just voting one would be pretty high as an option that people would use. It does make a difference what the ballot paper instructions say. It does make a difference what the how to vote say. You do get a lot more preferencing in systems where we kind of push it more. And something I've been kind of pushing a little bit is, are there ways you can nudge people to use their preferences without using the threat of making their vote informal? Because when you do that, some people make a mistake and there's actually quite a few votes to get lost because of it. You know, other people heed the threats and do what we want them to do and mark the preferences, but not everyone does. And so you do lose some votes. So it's um, it can be quite low, the preferencing rate, though. And so, you know, it can get back towards, say, you've got that 15-seat council. It does look a little bit like list PR because people vote above the line. There are preferences, but a lot of people don't mark preferences. And it ultimately comes down to how many quotas of votes does each party have? And then maybe the last seat turns into a little bit of a race around preferences. But uh, they do really resemble list PR, these high magnitude elections. You know, New South Wales Upper House has 21 members elected at a time, a large ballot, lots of parties. Usually there's only one seat where, you know, if you were to just look at the first preference votes and allocate the seats with a simple, like, allocation method and not look at a single preference, you would get within one seat of the total result every time. I'm looking at data now that that are very similar. If you just take the first choice votes and use them for an open list allocation, 91% of winners are the same. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's in a city with a nonpartisan ballot, no less. And so there is a question there about all the effort we put into doing this. And I think for lower magnitude elections, you know, if you had five member districts, seven member districts, I think it does work really well in Tassie and the ACT, but they're both systems where people have been trained and are relatively well-educated. The magnitudes are smaller. I mean, we're going to have an election in 2025 for the Western Australian Upper House, totally been reformed, 37 seats in a single district across the whole state. And they're going to use the New South Wales system, basically. So it'll be STV with tickets. Probably the result will go within one seat or two, maybe, of what would have happened if they didn't even bother to look at the preferences. They just added up the total for the party, went down the list, closed list PR. The result will look very similar, but in order to get that result, people will be filling out a large, complicated ballot with lots of options for below-the-line voting that people probably aren't going to use very much. And all those ballots will have to go to a warehouse and be data entered so you can do a proper preferential count on them. And I'm not really sure it's worth the trouble, to be honest. And I think it is worth the trouble for some lower magnitude elections where, for the same reason why... So you have a single-member election, you have first-past-the-post, you have all those spoiler issues in terms of vote splitting and having to be strategic in how you vote. Then you're electing two. You still need to be kind of strategic in how you vote. 
you have to think about that kind of stuff. Preferential voting makes it less important for you to be strategic. And my theory has kind of been as the magnitude goes up, that value becomes less and less and less. And by the time you're at 21, 37, it doesn't matter. Like it's not really worth the trouble. Oh, that's a good That's a good theory. <laughs> so what's going through my head right now as I talk to you, uh, an Australian who knows his stuff, is to what extent – So you've got all these preferential systems, single transferable vote systems that people really aren't availing themselves of. They're voting above the line. To what extent does like insistence on using the alternative vote to elect the House of Representatives have spillover effects throughout the rest of the party system and electoral system? In other words, because we insist on not having a PR system for House of Representatives, because we want to cling to the alternative vote for House of Representatives, you know, we ha- we sort of have to perpetuate. I'm going to use the word myth. This myth about ranking uh, throughout the rest of the political system, because I think there's a sort of alternate run of Australian history in which the 1902 bill brings in STV for the House. Is that right? Yeah, I was going to bring up the 1902 bill because the first federal government gets elected. STV was actually used to elect members of both houses for Tasmania. So Tasmania didn't have any individual electorates until the second election because of that. They bring in the bill and it goes to the Senate first because it's the federal government has just been created. They've got a lot of work to do. There's a lot on and the Senate's got a little bit less on. And so they introduced the bill in the Senate first. The plan had been STV for the upper house, statewide election. Lower house was single member alternative vote. And so it was pretty much the system we have now. And STV got taken out in the Senate. And then when it went to the House, part of the resistance in the House was, well, now we're not doing numbering. We're doing just mark a single box for one House and we're doing numbering for the other House. That's weird. Um, We don't really like that. Let's just get rid of it all. Let's just go back to first past the post. And the government kind of dropped the ball. That's my understanding of it was they, they kind of they gave up the fight. They weren't a majority government. There was at least kind of three parties. The parties were fluid. Everyone had come from their colonial parliament, like a large number of members of the federal parliament had been colonial members of parliament with their own party systems or lack of party systems. And they all had come to Melbourne and were trying to work out how to form stable government. They hadn't really gotten there yet. And um, it didn't really happen. And then 1919, we get the alternative vote in the lower house, and they do actually change the Senate voting system so it involved preferential voting because there is a concern about making sure that people can sort of use the same methods for both houses, but it's majority preferential voting, block preferential voting. Um, We use that for about 30 years, and it makes the Senate kind of pointless because the Senate either has super majorities for the government or super majorities for the opposition, um, there's a point in the 40s where the opposition holds three seats in the Senate and the government holds every other seat because at the previous two elections, the government had won five out of six states at one election and six out of six at the other one. And the way it works is you win a state, you win all the senators for that state. And it was terrible and then they get rid of it. And I mean, that's that's a whole separate conversation when they do. But There is a concern about having inconsistent voting systems that confuse people, either between the houses or between uh, state and federal. We definitely get more informal voting in the lower house at federal elections in New South Wales because New South Wales allows you to just vote one for the lower house in state elections. 
And you notice it's worse when there's been a state election recently and people can kind of remember doing that. We noticed a bit of a thing that before the last reform to the Senate, people would just vote one in the Senate and they'd have to number all the boxes in the House. And that worked okay. Like quite a few people had their vote marked informal for the lower house because they didn't number enough boxes. But I think there was an understanding of that. But we have noticed when they changed the Senate voting system, the instructions now encourage you to number at least six boxes. And we noticed that having an effect on the House of Representatives that uh, when the number of candidates reached eight or higher, the informal vote went up. Because if there's only seven candidates, you only are technically required to number six boxes. The seventh box is kind of implied as that candidate being ranked last. But once you get to eight, if you number six boxes on a ballot with eight candidates, your vote's informal. It does seem like more people, but we're talking a few percentage here or there, really. As ballots get longer and longer in the House of Representatives, you do get more informal voting. Sometimes we get elections with 12, 13 candidates. We've got a by-election coming up soon with 13 There was a by-election about 15 years ago where you had 22 candidates running. You do get much higher informal votes in those elections because people have to number all those boxes. It's much harder to do. It's much easier to make a mistake. But we notice that there's a step change when you get to eight from seven. That's fascinating. You know, four, five, six, seven doesn't make a big difference. You go to eight, it does make a difference because there's a group of people who get a Senate ballot and they're told to number six boxes or more. And then they, they take their House vote and they number six boxes. That makes sense. That's fascinating. And then so one response to all of this here in the United States is it's a very small percentage of voters who sort of don't get it or don't like it or do what you're describing, which is look at the instructions for one set of offices and apply them to the voting process for another set of offices. But the thing the thing about STV is it's so sensitive to the behavior of small numbers of voters. Uh, does that comport with your experience having studied STV elections? I mean, I described a scenario in which a small number of transfers changed majority control of a major city government. If it's close, it absolutely can. Or if it's if it's a high magnitude election where you're electing like 15 people or something or 21, it may only be one seat that comes to play. But if you, you know, we um, the last New South Wales state election the left won 12 out of 21 seats. And if they'd won 13, they would have had a total majority control in the upper house because they hadn't done as well in the previous election. And so it does all, like elections tend to be close, right? Party systems tend to evolve. If one party is super dominant and wins every election easily, they tend to split and someone else tends to come along. I feel like there's a tendency towards elections don't tend to become super landslides long-term. You tend to have close elections. These things matter. We do notice in New South Wales, voters who are progressive are more likely to number more preferences than voters who are conservative. And I think it does actually give a structural advantage to the left. And the Greens, I mean, they also have a more educated voter base who are kind of probably more passionately supportive of the voting system, whereas One Nation, which is the far right party, um, has a lot more people who probably do support first past the post. They don't really believe in the kind of touchy-feely kind of <laughs> preferencing everyone. And so they came out in, in the election and were like, we proudly say just vote one. We won't make any efforts to encourage our voters to preference other people. And that probably helped them a little bit with their primary vote by like appealing to their base. But 
it it does appear to be a thing that may have it in the last couple of, it didn't didn't look like it made a difference in 2023 but in 2019 2015 2011 the left caught up and overtook a right wing candidate and won an extra seat in the upper house at all of those elections and in all those elections you look at the ballot paper data and you know more people are preferencing so it does make a difference and is that legitimate like it you know all voting systems have ways you can manipulate and you can get better at using it you know it's just as true for single member electorates right getting better at marginal seat campaigning and focusing your efforts and micro targeting and all those kind of things every voting system has it and you could equally argue like having an open list pr system creates the potential that you know the democrats have half a quota left over of votes to elect someone and the Greens have half a quota. And if you had a preferential system, those votes can effectively combine and elect someone and under an OLPR system, maybe they don't. And so I don't think there's anything special about that, but yeah, it definitely happens. We could talk all night about the different voting systems. It's so fascinating learning about like a different point in time and a different political culture that kind of took this on board and ended up kind of spitting it out again. One way to think about all of this electoral reform in the United States, uh, and I'm going to borrow a phrase from Rick Vallelee. He has a great little book called uh, Very Short Introduction to American Politics. He writes that in 2011, and he says, we're in a party period right now. And I think the implication is that our political system oscillates between party periods and anti-party periods. It's like this sine wave that runs through American history. So, you know, I think we're probably coming out of a party period right now and going into an anti-party period. Uh, and then when we go back into the next party period, to you know, whatever reforms we're adopting now could get spit out again, to use your phrase. And I found that to be a useful mental mental model for understanding electoral system change in the United States. It's been a really fascinating conversation. People who are interested in this stuff absolutely go out and check Jack's book, More Parties or No Parties. It was really interesting to learn about, to think about all of the ways that change happens or doesn't happen and what contributes to that. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Jack, for joining me. Thanks, Ben. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroom at mastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.